Salturot. You're very welcome to Glower, our podcast here at RC Connolly, the James Connolly Visitor Centre on the Falls Road in Belfast. Each series of this podcast focuses on a quote from the writings of James Connolly, and we all ask our guests to reflect on that quote as we explore what it is that they do and what motivates them in their walks of life. So, join us as we explore the writings of James Connolly and the relevance they have to us today. You're welcome back to this episode of our podcast, Glor, here at the James Connolly Visitor Centre on the Falls Road. Um, our guest today um, is well known, I'm sure, to many of our listeners. Um, it's dairy journalist uh, Aoife Grace Moore, who writes now with the Irish Examiner. So, to Falcher Wood, you're very welcome here today. Thank you for having me. Good no much. problem. Uh, delighted to have you here. Um, and the quote uh, for this series, of course, for anyone who's been listening, um, and for anyone who hasn't indeed, um, is drawn from Connolly's writing in 1915, The Reconquest of Ireland. None so fitted to break the chains as they who were them. None so well equipped to decide what is a fetter in its march towards freedom. The working class of Ireland must cheer on the efforts of those women who, feeling on their souls and bodies the fetters of the ages, have arisen to strike them off. Um, so a powerful quote um, and very relevant to, to, to a lot of, I suppose, your own work, Eva, mm-hmm. and, and we'll come to that a little bit later. But first of all, tell me a wee bit about yourself and what it is that you do um, as a journalist at the moment. Yeah, so um, as you said, I'm from Derry City. Um, my mommy is from Craigan and my daddy is from Chantal, so two very known, well-known uh, nationalist working class estates in Derry. Um, I don't come from a political family, but I do come from a campaigning family. So um, my uncle, Paddy Doherty, was murdered on Bloody Sunday by the paratroopers. And our family was one of the founding families of the Bloody Sunday Justice Campaign. Um, so I think that's kind of informed <laughs> most of my life and kind of how I look at my job and basically I think why I became a journalist. So we were always, you know, at protests and marches and press conferences and you could never really um, get away from it. Um, I don't ever remember learning about Bloody Sunday, you just knew. Um, so then I think by the time I was around 15, 16, I had kind of decided that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, mostly because I both really hated and really respected the press. So in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday, you know, the British press um, did very little investigative work and took the British government and the British army's line on what happened on the day and basically tainted or painted all the victims there as uh, terrorists and paramilitaries. Um, they had insult, a very fatal injury. And then it was the evidence and the photographs and the testimony of the journalists who were there on the ground, the French journalists, there was Japanese journalists, Italian journalists, there on the day who were able to say no actually that's not what happened so I think the reason I went into journalism was because I'm very much one of these people that I feel like if you can't complain about something if you can do something about it so I went into the press basically with hating the press <laughs> but um I have focused a lot even though I work in Leinster House I work in politics in Dublin I have focused a lot on working class issues, feminist issues, sexual harassment, um, the harassment of mothers, single mothers on the single mother's payment, um, drug addiction, homelessness, all those kinds of things are kind of what's most interesting to me. 
I really feel like there are enough people in journalism um, in this country and in other countries who represent where they come from, but where they come from tends to be a bit more well off, um, maybe than we'd be used to, and privately educated and all do you, that. Do you feel that, that maybe, and, and hopefully this is changing, but do you feel that the, the journalism industry is maybe some way misrepresentative of society? Oh, absolutely, 100%. It's misrepresentative. It is a lot worse, I know, in England. I think the top 10 of the top 10 best paid journalists in England, I think nine of them were privately educated. Uh, it's not as bad as that in the north. Like we know that the class system hasn't really permeated because the troubles have held us back for so long. That's changing now, obviously. In the south, you definitely notice it as well. Um, it is changing, and I think, you know, only when we have more women, more minorities, more disabled people, more people from the LGBT community in journalism, that's when it'll start reflecting society. I think politics has a long way to go north and south about reflecting society as well so journalism is probably you know an offshoot of that but I am very much a product of my environment and I it doesn't really make any sense to me to do journalism the way that you know it has been done by older privately educated men because they I'm not denigrating their experience but we have very different experiences and I can't relate do certain things that they might go through and they wouldn't relate to certain things. I would go through and like it strikes me, it really struck me when I did a series on social welfare inspectors. So when you're on a single parent payment, the these inspectors were basically harassing these women and checking if they had a boyfriend so that God forbid they were getting an extra 10 euro a week or whatever it was. And a lot of people in Leinster House didn't even know what a social welfare inspector was. And I find this totally mental <laughs> because obviously when I grew up you knew you know you people from the dole would come to the house and yeah. for whatever reason and do checks or interviews or whatever so things like that and I think it's just because I'm a product kind of my environment and I kind of uh, my journalism tends to be better when I am really interested in the thing that I'm covering yeah like if you ever hear see me writing stories about boats or animals you know that <laughs> And do you think, have there been many obstacles in terms of trying to enter that world mm -hmm. coming from a working class background? Because it, you know, particularly whereas I say it is, as you say, it is most representative society, sometimes then the structure to, mm -hmm. to get into that world is, is nearly stacked against you. It is, and journalism is, in every country I've lived in, journalism is who you know. And if you don't know anyone, it's it's harder to get in. Now, it's not that you won't get in. It is just that wee bit harder. You know, there are national newspapers uh, in Dublin who there's an entire family tree who works at that newspaper. Uh, that doesn't happen by accident. Um, that is, again, it is changing. It's slow and it's incremental, but it is changing. We are seeing more younger journalists, more women, more working class people. But um, it is very slow. I would say that... I didn't so much struggle breaking into journalism, but it is the attitudes of certain people when you are there. And that's not just online. I have had incredibly disrespectful things said to me by politicians, by other journalists, by management, uh, by people's staff who work in Leinster House. Um, a lot of it is um, classist, some of it is sexist, a lot of it is very anti-Northern. I think anyone 
sadly anyone who has ever heard of me would know that um, a lot of the abuse I get is very anti-Northern. Um, it is very sectarian, um, probably because my name is Aoife and I'm very proud to be from Derry City and then people from that take that I must have one feeling or the other about a certain political party. And I'm not going to waste my breath anymore telling them that I don't. Um, I think people like that tend to be older and tend to have their mind made up. It's not really something that I see very much with younger people. But it is, there is a certain type of, usually man, who um, has issues with working class women. And I do definitely think I've spoken to a few working class people in Leinster House, whether it be politicians or journalists, and we all kind of have similar experience. And it's not, it's very rarely something blatant to your face, but it's a lot of very snide comments. Um, that and must that's... be off-putting too, do you agree? Mm. Especially when you're trying to, as you say, you're coming in from kind of a very different experience in loads of ways yeah. to people in Leinster House. So being from the North, being, yeah. old, being from a working class background, it certainly isn't necessarily the norm. That must be off-putting to a degree. I really wasn't expecting it. I went in so green and I thought, well, I'm not from the South, so I don't have any link to Fianna Fáil, I don't have any link to Fianna Gain, I don't have any link to Sinn Féin, so I'm not going to get accused of anything. And I had no idea that all I had to do was be called Aoife and have a dairy accent and then I would be tarred as this uh, hardcore Republican based on absolutely nothing. Um, in my first every time that I went on TV was for the RT for the RTE election coverage and I sat down in the studio really nervous had never been on TV before and I was sat next to another male journalist from Dublin who we were talking about the election results and I think I had maybe had one conversation with this man before in my life mm -hmm. and he turned to me and he said well you must be delighted because you're such a shinner. One conversation with this man I have had in my life before this. I and then, able to get so much from that conversation. And then <laughs> 10 seconds later, they went, okay, we're live. And I was so nervous, so put off, really annoyed, really hurt. And it really threw me the entire day. I would say that since then, that man has offered me a job a number of times and I've turned him down. <laughs> Pleasure, <I imagine. laughs> interesting though isn't it the assumptions that people make based on where you are or your name mm -hmm. where you're where you're from sorry and your name and and I've had my my fair share of it yeah. um and it can be often but it's, it's important to overcome it and I think mm -hmm. it's even more important to kind of call it out to be like this mm -hmm. happens because it means if if anyone else I suppose is coming kind of thinking well I might be a journalist or I might yeah. want to do this that they're at least I suppose with somebody prepared yeah because like sometimes I think should I, sh I, I sometimes I tweet out the abuse that I get so people can see it. And then I'm like, oh, should I be doing this? Because I don't want to turn into the woman who is trolled and people just know me as the woman who's being trolled. But the other side of that is, do I just put up with them? Does this just become yeah. part of my job? Yeah. Because I wouldn't put up with it if I worked in Tesco's. I was going to say it, it so, shouldn't be. So. so why should I? And... I constantly, not constantly, but anytime I do get something that kind of cuts below the bone, I will retweet it. And I have always made the point that I want people to see what I have to put up with. Because if it's me, fair enough, I might be the only girl from Shanti who's come down to Leinster House and works in politics. 
but I want the next we get dairy girl who comes down to Leinster House who doesn't have to put up with the same amount of stuff that I have to put up with. And it's not that I'm putting myself forward as a murderer, but I want to challenge those attitudes and say, this isn't on, this isn't based on anything. And this notion of a shared island, you know, there's a lot of talk about how we need to reach out to other communities, you know, the new Irish, the unionist community, the loyalist communities that have been left behind with the Good Trade Agreement. We absolutely do. But there is a serious amount of education that needs to go on in the South about their northern neighbours. And because a lot of them just don't want to know. They have made up their minds about us a long time ago and put us in a box. And it's a green box and an orange box. And for all their chat that we have tribal politics, the tribal politics is in their head. Because we know from the census, we know from the election that we just had, it's not the case anymore. But there is a certain section of society, especially in the South, that wants us to stay that way because then they want to be able to say but they're both as bad as each other. Yeah, it's much easier to do this. But it's, it's interesting just to come back to what you said at the start about coming from a family who's challenging the status quo and mm-hmm. who's always done that because it strikes me that that's really what you're doing in a, mm-hmm. in a different arena but, you know, the same game. And, and how much do you think, you know, your family background and stuff has, has I suppose, helped you and given you that sort of... Because it's... it's it's hard doing it on your own and, and you never are hopefully you know yeah. your family and that's behind you how much do you think that background has sort of helped you start to challenge those things a hundred percent like i grew up you grew up your entire life as a bloody sunday family you go up your entire life questioning everything the government say to you so if you listen to the british government i am a british citizen i belong to them they they love me they want me as one of their citizens and they have gone out of their way to tell the families in Ballymurphy and Bloody Sunday that you're not the same. You're not the same as people in Liverpool. You're not the same as people in Manchester. And we grew up, you know, questioning everything the British government said because they told so many lies about our family, about our loved one, about the inquiry, about what happened to the soldiers, about what they told the soldiers. So naturally, I think that makes me quite good at my job. I try not to be cynical. But it is so important to question everything because governments are going to be governments. They, I have a job to do and so do they. And mine is to question them. And then as corny or as cheesy as it sounds, you know, that old saying about journalism is to um, convert the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's what I see myself doing. I'm not really interested in being in Leinster House to, you know, cover leaders questions which of course you have to do but there's another part of the job that is why is like 10,000 children on a waiting list for speech for speech therapy why is a quarter of the country's population on a waiting list for a routine procedure you know where is the money going what is happening so I think everything is politics as well you know like if you're as I say if you're waiting on speech and language therapy if your granny's in a trolley in a hospital if you kind of get your head above water we rent, that's all politics. And that's very much how I see it. So I think definitely the area I come from and the family I come from, and you see a lot of, you know, inequality. And inequality is a choice that's made by governments. You know, it doesn't happen by accident. So I think that's probably where it came from. And yeah, I think that's probably how I ended up in the job I'm in. 
just to, to draw them on, on the quote that we're looking at this series, um, and, I'll, and I'll read it just just once more for our audience. None so fitted to break the chains as they who wear them, none so well equipped to decide what is a fetter. In its march towards freedom, the working class of Ireland must cheer on the efforts of those women who, feeling on their souls and bodies the fetters of the ages, have arisen to strike them off. Written in 1915, over 100 years ago, mm-hmm. long before we were kicking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... The first two lines in that seems to reflect nearly what you, from mm-hmm. my kind of interpretation, what you've been saying already. But when you hear that quote as a whole and talking, you know, Connolly was talking about um, campaigns for rights, kind of mm-hmm. working alongside each other and support mm-hmm. each other. What does it mean to you or does it mean anything to when you? When I was reading it, the first two lines reminded me, actually, I thought it was so pertinent for this moment about the Northern Ireland Protocol. So we're talking about this the day after the British tabled the legislation to override the Northern Ireland Protocol, something the people of Northern Ireland do not want. And the first line of that is about the none so appropriate. Like, the people of Northern Ireland should decide what happens in Northern Ireland. Like, it should not be done from Westminster. And then the last two lines about the women and their choices reminds me so much about the struggle to get bodily autonomy again in Northern Ireland. We have people in Westminster and people in Stormont trying to legislate or not legislating, as it is now, for a woman's right to choose. When we know from polling, it is publicly available polling, that the majority of people in Northern Ireland and the majority of women in Northern Ireland would like the right to choose. I think it's so pertinent now, even if you take the work and the class element out of it and just even look at Brexit and bodily autonomy, those thing that quote is still so fitting there should not be anyone dictating to someone else how or why or where they should live their lives it, there is no one so fitting as the people themselves and i think obviously northern ireland's been on a journey the last 50 years towards peace but on the peace process only worked when the people were there getting the say when they all came around the table and i know obviously it was facilitated by uh, the British government, the Irish government in America. But it was only when they got, you know, Jerry Adams, Don Purvis, David Trumbull, the people of Northern Ireland around the table because when they tried it on their right. own, yeah. Charlie Hockey was getting nowhere, Margaret Thatcher was getting nowhere. It is only the people involved, the people who it will affect day to day, it is only those people who can make the best choices. And I find with Brexit, I'm sure everyone listening to this feels the same, Everyone was talking about Northern Ireland and no one was talking to Northern Ireland. And there are people like Michelle O'Neill and Naomi Long and these people saying, this is what we want. And then Micheál Martin takes their word and goes back over to Brussels and tells Brussels and it's not good enough. But it's because of, and I very much place the blame with the British government here, that they decided what they thought was best for Northern Ireland. And it was no odds what we wanted and it was obviously to the great credit of Brussels and we had Maura Sekovic here and Micheál Martin and Simon Coveney and they've all done a lot of work and the politicians in Northern Ireland have done a lot of work but if nobody's listening if the people who hold all the cards aren't listening then there's not really much that you can do so I still think yeah it is so fitting and then even when you think about it in the kind of class element of it it will be, you know, it, it's for everything. It's for, as I say, in Bally Murphy or anyone who's looking for justice. It's like, there is the best people to do it are those themselves who are involved. I think it is probably more fitting for Northern Ireland 
that it is probably anywhere else in the world. <laughs> I mean, and you do see it, I mean, the likes of the Bloody Something campaign, the Bally Murphy families, uh, and John Jarry with the language rights, mm-hmm. um, all of those who are campaigning in favour for women to have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something I've touched on actually in, in all the conversations, kind of naturally in this series, but so much of it comes from, from the ground up and, mm-hmm. and it's very important, I think, to, to recognise that. Mm-hmm. I suppose in terms of, of your own work, Aoife, how do you see kind of your role maybe in, in, mm-hmm. in assisting that? Or I know you have, you've touched on it briefly, but as kind of looking to the future, you're going to continue what you're doing presumably mm-hmm. and, and, and ply on and mm-hmm. keep challenging and keep questioning? Yeah, I think a lot of my work is trying to shine a light on things that, first of all, that I find either, you know, unequal or shocking or that needs... Um, a light shone on it and just when you were talking about things from the ground up I don't think there's any better example of a campaign that came from the ground up than repeal the eighth you know it was women that won abortion rights in the south the political parties all of them whether they were wearing repeal jumpers at the end or not all of them were behind the public the public was way ahead especially led by women a grassroots campaign and I'm not there as an activist in my job to say we should be doing this or we should be doing that but it's given people who normally don't have a voice a voice and I do a lot of work in Dublin with the Stardust Justice Campaign um so for people who don't know because I didn't really know before I moved to Dublin and you know it's that Christy Mercer yeah 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 so I didn't know much about it um the Stardust was the worst fire disaster in the history of the Irish state um 42 young people died on Valentine's night in 1981 and there has been an ongoing campaign to get a real proper inquest and they would happen. We know that you know, fire escapes were locked. There's a question over how the fire even started um, and these families who have been through like such a immense tragedy have now only got their new inquest. It's starting now properly in September and you know the fire was in 1981. So, years. Yeah years so old. That's what I mean about, you know, grassroots. And it's when the people who are directly involved get involved, you, it, there's always left to the people to fight the state. And it really shouldn't be. The state's job is to put their hands up or say, okay, we'll help you. We'll find out what happened. It should have been done by Bloody Sunday. It should have been done by Kings. And there's so many massacres across the north and even in the south with the Stardust and, and the mother and baby homes. Everything has to be a fight all the time. Because that's what governments do. They get their backs up and say, no, no, because they don't want to admit it. Because when you start admitting things, you have to start apologising and you have to start paying out a lot of money. And it's up to me. I see my role as facilitating those people to have a voice. I'm not there as an activist to say, I believe in this, so this is what I'm going to cover. But uh, because I have covered a lot of things that I absolutely do not agree with. But that's the job. And that's kind of where I see my role and I am not really there to be the voice, but basically to give the voice to the people who are part of whatever issue it is. That's brilliant. Aoife, um, thank you so much for coming on. Girl, I like it. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll see you back in RC Kanye soon. Girl, thank you.